enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest escapes these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And guys, you've heard me talk about Prevenex in the past and how amazing their Joint Health Plus supplement is for all runners, how it reduces pain and stiffness, improves joint flexibility, and protects joint cartilage from breakdown during exercise. You guys know this. I know this. It's great. However, that's not the only product I use of Prevenix. One of my favorite products is their daily multivitamin. In fact, I take it in the morning and at evening. I love this stuff. I really, really do. And that's one thing I admire about Prevenex is that they don't compromise when it comes to production quality, ingredient quality, testing their products, and the multivitamin is no exception. It comes from the highest products that they can put in there, and it just really does the trick. It really and truly does. And anyone who is you know, talking to either registered dietitians or people of that ilk, they know the best way to get nutrients is through food. However, supplementation, especially multivitamin, can really help fill in the gaps because none of us eat perfectly. We just don't. I know I don't. And this really helps along that front. And I believe me, it will help you as well. So go to Prevenex.com, P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com and save 15% on your first order using code RUNNER15. Thank you so much for Prevenex for sponsoring every episode here on the Rambling Runner podcast. So go check them out. Today's episode is with Heather McCurdy. Heather was on the show about two years ago. She is not only just an awesome runner, a great coach, but a fantastic person. I couldn't wait to get her back on this podcast because she has an injury story that so many people can relate to. You might not have had the injury that she had, but you've had an injury maybe many injuries, and you know the physical toll it can take, also the mental and emotional toll it can take, and those are real. And we talk about that not only in terms of what she has gone through as a runner, but what she tells her dozens of athletes that she talks to as they go through this process. And we also talk about cross-training and how what she's done as a cross-trainer over the past two years has helped inform her when she talks about that topic as well. So I really can't couldn't wait to get her on the podcast, talk about all of those things because it can relate to all runners of all abilities. One thing we didn't touch it base on or talk about, I should say, during the podcast was how she did in the McCurdy Mile series. Over the past two months, she absolutely kicked butt the first mile in the McCurdy Mile series. She just wanted to be able to complete it from like a run walking situation. She completed it in 14 minutes and eight seconds, and that actually met her goal. And then she wanted to increase her speed a little bit more each time as fitness improved and has her her lower legs improved from the surgeries that she had. She went from, th- from that 1408 to a 757 to a 726 to a 604. I mean, my goodness, that's great. But you know what? It's not all rainbows and lollipops when it comes to coming from back from injury. And we talk all about that in this episode. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Heather McCurdy. Hey, Heather, welcome back to the show. Hey, Matt, I'm so excited to be here. So last time you were on the show was about two years ago. You actually had a different name back then. People might have heard that episode with Heather Zuba. Now, Heather McCurdy, I'm excited to have you on. I I know it's like, it's it's funny. It's one of those things where like, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but then at the same time, it feels like a lifetime ago in the same, in the same way. 
So, yeah, I mean, I vividly remember sitting in a hotel room. I was traveling for my my old job as a software engineer and I was back home in Syracuse. Um, and I very, very vividly remember recording that conversation. But then when I think about the things we talked about, I realized how long ago that was and how much has changed since then. So it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So in our last conversation, it was that quintessential podcast that people who listen to this show love, right? It was that conversion of somebody who had worked hard, but hadn't really seen the success that maybe they thought they would. And then weren't quite sure what to do next. And all of a sudden start reaching whole new levels. And for you, that was, you know, specifically in the marathon and you've reached a bunch of new levels since that conversation, but you've also had uh, some injury issues. That's I really want to talk to you about that today. So kind of the, how injuries have affected your running recently, I think recently can be a broad term in relation <laughs> to, to your injuries, uh, but also as someone who coaches so many runners and someone who is the co-owner of one of, if not the biggest coaching service in the country, how you work with athletes and advise other coaches who work with athletes who are battling similar injury issues. So I guess first things first, what was your, that big injury that has really kind of set you up? I know it was actually a Women's Health Magazine just covered, or Women's Running Magazine just covered it uh, today, oddly enough. Um, but what was, what exactly were you dealing with? Yeah. Um, so I'll try not to go on forever about it. It has been something that's been around for me for a few years. It was actually impacting me the last time we talked two years ago. I just didn't know what it was. Um, I've been having troubles with my calves for probably a solid three, three and a half years now. And everybody that I've worked with and from how I experienced it, it, it felt like a strain and it was predominantly happening in my left calf. And we just thought that I was straining my calf over and over again. And so I went through like a whole lot of, you know, soft tissue work, massage, ART, Graston, trying different shoes, trying to adjust training, um, yada, yada, just years of, of all of this. Um, and then finally on one uh, horrible but amazing day. Uh, both of my calves freaked out at the exact same time in a workout. And I went in to see uh, that day the chiropractor I'd been working with here in town. And um, Wes is such a smart guy, and I'm so grateful to him. He immediately was like, wow, I bet this is compartment syndrome. Um, and so at that point, we had like kind of an idea of what had been plaguing me. Um, I ended up getting you know, the diagnostic test done for that, which confirmed it. And then I ended up having surgery to fix the issue back in March. All right. So when you say in town, you're in Flagstaff, which is yes. kind of one of the running capitals of the United States. So there's obviously a bevy of people who are qualified to work with runners and who do work with runners. And you know people just either professionally and or socially who work with runners all the time. So what about your injuries it was both legs. So I don't have to say injury or injuries, but with your issues that popped up, what about them made them particularly tricky to diagnose? Um, so my symptoms don't exactly fit compartment syndrome 100%. Um, compartment syndrome is a more rare injury. Um, there aren't there or there isn't a ton of literature out there about it. And if you read like kind of the diagnostic criteria, my symptoms didn't fit a hundred percent. And for a long time, I was only experiencing the pain in one calf. So the hallmark symptom of compartment is that it, you're experiencing the symptoms in both legs at the same time. So once that hit, 
it was sort of like a light bulb went off. Um, but I think for so long, because what I was feeling didn't exactly match, it was just hard to figure out exactly what was happening. Um, you know, so for me, what, what it was is if you read like the description of compartment, it's basically like a pressure sensation that starts setting in at almost the exact same time in terms of duration into your activity. So people will report like every five minutes into a run, every 10 minutes into a run, whatever it might be, they start feeling that sensation in both legs. For me, it was almost like loading over a longer stretch of time. So I could go weeks sometimes, be completely pain-free, everything would be great, workouts were great, easy runs were great, and then all of a sudden, like I'd be four miles into an eight-mile easy run doing nothing unusual, and all of a sudden, my calves would start seizing up, and I would feel you know pretty intense pain that would cause me to, to cut runs and workouts short. Now, what was that like, having this kind of mercurial pain that really just like would come and go almost like, like like a writer's genius would like all of a sudden show up on their shoulder and then go, you know, to four weeks without being able to write like a coherent sentence in terms of trying to figure out like what was going on. Not only that, but the other side of things, you're a goal-oriented person. You love running. You live with a runner. <laughs> you know, you, a lot of your friends are runners. You are, you know, you have big dreams in terms of what you can accomplish. So when you go on these streaks of being able to run well, and then all of a sudden, boom, injury bug hit, what was that like for you trying to manage potential expectations and the ideas of trying to reach new heights? You know, it was really frustrating because I blamed myself for a lot of it. Um and I was so hyper-focused on what I was feeling and when I was feeling it that workouts would sort of become this mental battle of, oh my gosh, does my does my calf hurt? Should I stop because my calf hurts? Should I keep going? Um, you know, am I just being a baby? Like, am I just like looking for a way out? Am I looking for an excuse? Uh, you know, and so I would just do this back and forth in my head all the time, which was just really draining. It, it really, you know, it really messed with my enjoyment of it. You know, I'm somebody who really does enjoy the process and enjoy seeing the progression that I've been able to make. And when I'm kind of like doing that second guess thing all the time, it just really, I don't know, it led to a lot of low moments for me. What was it like for you when you were trying to describe it to people? Not not necessarily like the doctors you were seeing, but just your your friends, especially your friends in the running community who want to be helpful and we're also trying to kind of give you space. What was that dynamic like? Oh my gosh, I was totally embarrassed for the most part. Like I really, you know, here I am, someone who prides myself on being pretty conservative, especially when somebody is a little bit injury prone in terms of the athletes that I work with. And, you know, I'm someone who takes my easy days pretty easy. I'm somebody who's pretty committed to, you know, foam rolling and strength training and doing all of those things. And yet here I am with a calf that just like won't behave at all. And so it was sort of embarrassing to, to be like, oh yeah, like, how did my workout go? Well, I dropped out of it because my calf hurts again. You know, it was like, I sort of wanted to kind of hide a little bit from some of my friends, um, especially when they were seeing running success, because I would rather talk about them and like, let's focus on you and the positive good things. Like we don't need to talk about this whole crap show that's happening over here. <laughs> 
And considering your profession, hiding from running is a non-starter. And, you know, I think we've all been there when we've either been injured or have had results that we weren't necessarily proud of or even training sessions that, you know, we just felt like we, you know, that we left something on the table and we you know wish we could have that another, you know, another bite of the apple. So when you were having those moments of kind of wanting to withdraw, what did what what did you need to do to kind of reacclimate yourself in terms of, you know, you know, I guess in terms of. Pre- not just presenting yourself a certain way, but being okay with what was going on and not letting it affect your external relationships. Yeah. So I think at a certain point, I realized I kind of had two choices. I could either, you know, kind of withdraw from social media when things weren't going well and just focus on the interpersonal relationships. Like, obviously, yes, I communicate with my athletes via social media, but that's certainly not our primary form of communication at all. Same thing with my friends, you know, so I could try, I could choose to kind of withdraw um, a little bit and be quieter about it, or I could kind of lean into it and just try to share what's going on, even when what's going on isn't the, you know, maybe the most motivating story or inspiring story or whatever you want to call it. Um, And I think I decided that, you know, I would advise my athletes to lean in. And so if that's what I would tell them to do, I felt like I needed to do it too. um, And to kind of lead by example on that front. Um, You know, I think a lot of people go through injuries Um, you know, some a little bit more minor, some a little bit more major and chronic. I don't know anybody though, that's like never had anything. And I think it's something that we sometimes feel just so ashamed of. And the reality is, is like, look, running's a hard sport. It's hard on your body. Things happen. It's nothing to be ashamed of. And I think if we talk about it more, um, you know, we can kind of create a little bit more of a community around it because it can be very isolating otherwise. As you mentioned, a lot of runners, ultimately, if you, if, you, if you run the time frame long enough, every runner will get injured at some point, oftentimes, many times. And what almost all runners do, especially here in the internet age, is go onto Google or WebMD and try to figure out what's going on. So what was that process like for you? Were you able to abstain from those sort of, sort of uh, internet marches or were you constantly checking, su- checking stuff out? Oh my gosh. I would love to tell you that I was just a model student and didn't do that at all because I would, of course, tell my athletes to never do that. Um, But that would be a lie. That would be a complete lie. Um, I definitely went down a bunch of Google holes like multiple times just trying to figure out what the heck could be going on because it was just so mystifying to me. Like I was just so convinced that it was not natural for somebody to just repeatedly strain a muscle. But then it also like over time, it I, as I learned more, I realized that it wasn't really behaving like a strain either. It felt like it, but the way it would just disappear once I backed off, it, I mean, it would go from literally being like a seven to eight out of 10 pain level to zero feels completely fine, like almost full range of motion through the muscle in like an overnight time frame, And I'm like, okay, well, this isn't, you know, this isn't a strain. So I got to figure this out. Like, I'm smart. I can do this. Um, But it really honestly just causes a lot of anxiety. Um, You know, I don't know. It's very tempting. You know, you feel very frustrated. You feel very like I need to be doing something to fix this and just sitting here doing nothing doesn't really feel good. So maybe the more I try to learn about this, it'll help somehow. But I think it just really kind of causes our minds to. 
you know, roll down some some paths of worst case scenarios pretty easily. Yeah, it certainly can. And it usually is never um, productive. <laughs> no. <laughs> <That's for sure. laughs> um, even if you get the even if the diagnosis right, like, you know, in terms of next steps to do and, and all of that. So I guess ultimately, what is compartment syndrome and what was what was needed to remedy the situation once it was identified? Yeah. So compartment syndrome, um, there are two different types. One is called acute, and that is the result of a trauma. Um, so think like car accident. Uh, football players are sometimes uh, diagnosed with it or, or have it after um, like a hard tackle. Um, it's basically acute trauma to the leg, and that can be life-threatening. Like that is like an emergent situation, very scary, can be dangerous, um, and usually emergency surgery is, is required. What I had is chronic compartment syndrome, which is basically a result of exertion. Um, so it's more of like, think like a slow and steady build over time rather than like an acute, all of a sudden something happening. Um, but basically if you think about everything that's in your lower leg, you have muscles, you have tendons, um, you have uh, veins and arteries and all of that stuff. Everything in there is in these compartments, um, that are surrounded by fascia. So fascia is relatively inflexible. It does move somewhat because your muscles swell with exercise. So typically what happens is the fascia will expand enough to allow the muscles to swell to the point they need to. Um, and that's what happens in like a normal functioning leg with compartment syndrome. The fascia doesn't move. So it basically like you have a muscle that's trying to swell out against an overly tight, like sausage casing. That's kind of a gross description, but we'll go with it. Um, and so and we just finished up 4th of July weekend, you know, it's yes, on the brain. Exactly. <laughs> Hot dog. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so it basically all of this pressure is happening in your lower leg because the muscles are swelling and there's nowhere for them to go. So it starts cutting off blood supply. Um, it can sometimes impinge nerves, which can lead to like a weakness or like a numbness or a tingling feeling. Um, and it's very, very reproducible. Um, the, the thing that also is kind of strange about it is that it does go away with rest. So things kind of like elevate up in there like a pressure cooker. But then the second you stop, it starts to get better like almost immediately. Um, so it's like this very weird sensation. Um you can sometimes try to treat it conservatively with like ART and, and soft tissue mobilization and techniques like that. But um, what any of the literature will kind of tell you and what any ortho will kind of tell you, like if your pressure readings are high enough, the only way to ever sort of permanently resolve it is to have what's called a fasciotomy. Um, so they basically go in and they make incisions in that fascia so that when your muscle swells, it has a place to go. Um, and that's kind of the end all be all solution to, to the injury. Got it. So to stretch this metaphor to its breaking point, it's the equivalent <laughs> of like sticking your fork in the hot dog before you put it in the microwave. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> all right. See, we're there. I'm kind of hungry now. Oh, uh, that's weird. Okay. But yes. <laughs> so I, so you, you posted the scars today on Instagram and they were, you know, gruesome. 
right? I mean, they were, they were, you know, especially at first, right? They were, they were quite long, what, four to six inches on both shins. Um, you know, then there, you know, I'm sure there's some, there'll be some scarring after that and so on and so forth. But it was seemed like a pretty invasive procedure. So what is, so what, I know you've kind of gone past it at this point, um, for all intents and purposes, but what is the time frame for recovery? <laughs> so this is a perfect example of why you don't ever WebMD or Google anything. Um, so the official sort of PT guideline suggests that in a typical recovery process, you can start to introduce running at about six weeks and that you can resume full activity at 12, like full training load. If you try to find like runners who have had this, it's a little bit hard because it is kind of rare, but I did find some, some people out there who had talked about or blogged about their experience with it. And oh my gosh, Matt, I'm telling you, some of these legs that I saw looked amazing. Like they were like the most beautiful in looking incisions. Like some of these runners felt incredible. Like they were like, oh, I didn't even need pain meds after a day. I was on pain meds for two weeks. It was excruciating. Like it was so, so, so bad. I had no prayer of being back to full training load at 12 weeks. Like that is just a ridiculous expectation given how my recovery has gone. And a big, big problem for me mentally was just that comparison game of hearing other people's experiences and then wanting mine to be exactly like theirs was. Um, and I actually talked to uh, a friend and another athlete of James's, Crystal Harris, um, who had she's had been this. on this podcast before. Yes, she was she, yes. she's she was a fantastic guest about a year and a half ago after CIM. Yes, she's amazing. I look up to her so much, and she actually had this same procedure done years ago, like prior to working with James. Um, same injury, same diagnosis, same surgery. And I texted her pretty tentatively about it because I was like, oh, I don't want Crystal to think I'm being a baby. <laughs> but she was like, no, like my recovery was awful. Like I, there were times I regretted having the surgery. I thought I was worse off afterwards. Like I thought I would never run pain-free ever again. And so like hearing that just really settled me down quite a bit because that was exactly how I was feeling about the whole thing. Um, it's it's been a long process. Like I'm 16 weeks now and I would say that I'm like feeling almost normal. Um, I still do get a little bit of pressure in my calves from time to time. It hasn't turned into pain yet, but I'm only running like 25 miles a week, 30 miles a week when, you know, prior to all of this, I was like a 65 to 70 mile a week runner. So I still have a ways to go. <laughs> and that was with Compartment syndrome. You were running yes. that kind of miles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's talk about how you dealt with all of this mentally. Did you lean on any professionals or you know or, or anybody else to try to get you through this from an emotional standpoint? Yes. Well, so I had already been um, you know, working with with a therapist. I have a background of depression and anxiety that just tends to flare up from time to time. I was already having um, you know, prior to the diagnosis, I, you know, I, I was feeling super anxious and, and it was, it was very hard. Um, it was, it's a very difficult feeling to feel like, you know, you're capable, 
of doing more and your body just isn't letting you. And then, you know, as I said before, kind of blaming myself a bit and feeling like I was just wussing out all the time. Um, you know, so I had started working with someone here in town and I'm so grateful that I made that decision when I did, because my surgery was right around the time that COVID hit. And then when COVID hit, a whole bunch of people started, you know, for completely understandable reasons, like reaching out and wanting the help of a professional, because this is like such an unprecedented, crazy time we're in right now. So I don't know if I could have found someone if I had waited. Um, But my therapist is amazing. And she's been like such a great, 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 like centering force for me to just kind of have those weekly check-ins and talk about what I'm feeling. And she's not a runner at all. um, But like, the way that she's able to like kind of frame things and show me compassion and kind of um, make me feel normal for feeling what I'm feeling has been a huge help for me. Um, I definitely couldn't have gotten through this in one piece without her. <laughs> and when you're talking to athletes who are going through sustained injuries or or anything that's really that you, anything that they're going through, that you can tell is having an effect on them um, far beyond the physical realm. What are what are some of the things that you like to tell them about you know the potential need for you know maybe seeing somebody or getting some assistance and how do you frame that conversation? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a touchy subject because I think mental health is a topic that can be polarizing, and I think that there is still quite a bit of stigma attached, um, you know, in certain circles. And I think it can also be a thing where. Um, you know, I think men are sometimes a lot less likely to want to reach out and admit that they need some help, especially, you know, in that realm, because it goes so much against like kind of this like idea of masculinity that we've built into our ridiculous culture. But like, I think it's um, one of those things where I I don't love talking about it because I feel pretty vulnerable, but I try to um, just to kind of say like, hey, like, I'm here. I struggle with these things. Like I see a therapist, I take medication. Um, I, I need to, to function and that's okay. I'm willing to say that. And so I think that has helped open the door to have those conversations with athletes because I think they feel like they know they're stepping into a place where there won't be judgment. Um, they, they obviously already, you know, since I've kind of put it out there, they know that I'm not going to be like, oh, what do you mean? Like, oh, I don't understand that. Oh, what do you mean? You're, you started a new antidepressant and it's, you know, messing with how you're feeling and your training. Like you just need to get this done, blah, blah, blah. Like, I think they know it's a safe zone, um, which is why I try to be vocal about that stuff. Um, you know, I think everybody kind of just needs to know that, you know, it's a difficult conversation, but especially over the past few months, it's one that I've had with a lot of athletes. Like people are struggling right now. How could we not be? No, I mean, absolutely. You're, you know, that's 100% right. And it is amazing to see certain startups that have come along that have allowed people to see and to talk to therapists, you know, from a distance, uh, as opposed to you know, having in-person consultations and, uh, and things like that. I know, um, I think kind of being in person does allow for a level of intimacy that is probably, you know, somewhat divorced from what you'd get from a, from a, um, you know, either a phone call or a zoom call, but it's still, it's certainly very worthwhile. I know my, my forays into, into therapy have always been, um, fruitful ones. That's for sure. And I've always felt like it also helped helped me from a physical standpoint. Like it wasn't just a mental and emotional battle. It all was connected. uh, That's for sure. With all of that being said, you talked about how your injury process was a very lengthy one. And obviously, you know, 
you approached it certainly near the end with a conservative touch because shoot, it just lasted for so darn long. And you, you want to be able to regain your form afterwards and you're still trying to do that. How has this process informed how you approach your athletes in regards to their injuries and in, in trying to figure out the best the best approach, you know, and in, in for them, whether that's be conservative or understanding when and where to push it? Yeah. You know, I think going through something yourself always helps you gain a little bit of better understanding. Um, so, you know, I don't, none of, I have a few athletes who are working through various and sundry injuries right now. None of them have exactly what I have, but I think what you would say we have in common is kind of the mental approach to it. Honestly, like that is a lot of times the most challenging part. I mean, you know, you're in peak training for a marathon, your goal race is four weeks away and you tweak your quad a little bit who like everybody's been there where they just feel like, Oh my gosh, I've worked so hard. This is all being taken away from me. Like it can be a real roller coaster. And I think just having gone through, um, that mental process is helping me be able to relate better to people who are currently going through that themselves. Not that I think I couldn't before, but it just, experience, personal experience always, always helps with the physical side of things with the actual, like, okay, here's what makes sense from a training perspective. It's really helped me immensely because, you know, I've been on the bike so much. It's helping me really understand a lot better. Um, you know, what types of cross training makes sense, how to structure cross training. It's also helped me see firsthand how much cross training can help. Like I'm not dumb. I knew it helped, but like, I didn't really realize how much it could help in terms of like just building that aerobic fitness and helping running feel not like quite so much of a slap in the face, especially if you've been off for a significant amount of time. So I think I'm definitely more of like a cross training champion now with my athletes and like kind of helping them structure that schedule in a little bit more of a pushy way than I was before, like presuming that that's what they want, of course. Um, but it's really helped me in, in that regard, just because I've gone through it myself now. Well, then maybe you can get involved with what Neely Spence Gracie and I were talking about of having like the aqua jogging Olympics. Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm so in. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this brings up a great point. I just had Seth Barrett on the podcast, a guy who you know went through a couple months of doing like pretty hardcore bike workouts, comes out of it, runs for very conservatively for like six weeks and then sets a 5k PR basically on the strength of his cross training. So you, you mentioned how this gave you new insight into that, how, or not how, but when you think about the different cross training modalities, what kind of insight did firsthand experience give you in terms of how to structure them in a way that would make them more beneficial for a, you know, for a runner who's using them for running ultimately? Yeah. So for starters, I think cross training has to be something you enjoy, um, or at least can tolerate, like I enjoy biking more than I thought I would. So I think that that's why I've been able to kind of stick with it. Whereas if I was just on the elliptigo, I do like the elliptigo, but I can't do it every day. It starts to get mind numbing. Um, you know, so like, same thing for me, like I'm not much of a swimmer. Um, 
so swimming wouldn't be my choice of cross training. So for starters, find an activity that you can enjoy, that you enjoy, that is pretty easily accessible to you. Um, something that you're going to be excited about doing. Um, what I've also found is that basically taking running workouts, looking at the duration and then translating it into a cross training workout is really easy and shockingly effective. So like I might do like a running workout I might do might be like, two miles up, five by a mile at threshold with a 90 second walk, two miles down. Um, but what that might end up looking like if I translate that to the bike is maybe 15 minutes easy to warm up, then five by six minutes at what feels like a threshold effort with a 90 second easy spin in between, and then 15 minutes easy to cool down. And and by translating it that way, like I'm finding that I'm getting the same benefit. Like I can definitely tell that I'm getting stronger. Um, you know, my easy pace is pretty much the same as it was before surgery. I didn't have that, you know, um, that feeling of like, oh my gosh, everything is so hard. It's impossible. Like I don't have a ton of running endurance. I'm not sharp right now, but I'm certainly pretty aerobically fit. Um, and so that's kind of been my strategy for attacking it. And it's worked really well. All right, let's talk about the bike because I love it. I think it's it's, it's certainly very useful whether your you know, gyms are starting to reopen or you, some people might have a bike in their home uh, or just heading out, um, you know, I'm, I'm taking a bike out on the road. One of the things that you have is you have the aerobic benefit, right? Like you just mentioned, if you're going five by six minutes at roughly threshold pace, where do you kind of figure out the potential benefit slash maybe – going too far in one direction when it comes to just say quad strength and you know you're getting to the point where you're building a lot of you're really taxing the leg muscles however maybe not getting the respiratory system as involved as it should be in terms of how you would plan out a you know you know certain bike workout or how you would fit in different kinds of bike workouts over a four to six week period yeah so part of it has to do with terrain as well right so like the workout that I just mentioned would be great for flat ground, but trying to do that if you live in an area that's super hilly, like you're just going to probably blow yourself up because hills are so hard on the bike. Like maybe I'm just a terrible cyclist, but oh my gosh. Oh like no, nothing's worse than going uphill on a bike. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> it's literally so humbling. Like, oh my gosh. So what I also find too, though, is that like the climbs, like, man, they make my quad sore. They really, really do. So like... I think you have to kind of take terrain into account a little bit more with, with, especially with biking than you would necessarily with running because most people, I mean, unless you're like training in the mountains for a trail race, although I would argue this is a similar philosophy, most people aren't exposing themselves to that much vert all the time in running. Like their terrain is a little bit more even keeled, even if they are in a, a hillier, like rolling hills type of area. But on the bike, like you can easily get yourself into trouble with like some really hard climbs and just really trash your quads. So you kind of have to space it out almost like it is a workout, even if it is like an, a quote unquote easy effort, because you are doing muscle damage to muscles that aren't being, aren't used to being worked in that way. Um, you know, obviously biking is using your muscles in a different way than running is. So it can expose some weaknesses that maybe you didn't realize were there. Um, but it, honestly, like I'm approaching it very similarly to how I train my trail runners, which is, yes, sometimes we want to go into the mountains and we want to do some runs that are essentially like a lot of hiking involved. Like we really want to get, we really want to work on the vert. We really want to work on the hiking skills. We want to, you know, be focused on elevation gain today, but I consider that a key workout, not an everyday thing. 
Um, you know, you have to run at normal running speeds to get faster, to develop aerobically. You can't be doing everything at like a 15 minute mile pace. And the same thing on the bike, like you can't be climbing so much every single day that you're, you're cycling at 12 miles per hour. Like you're going to need to go faster sometimes to develop aerobically too. So it's the same kind of principle of just like varying the work. Well, says you, Heather, but I mean, you can just take some EPO and be just fine. I mean, that's why it's so prevalent within the cycling community. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I should investigate that because I'm really terrible on these tales. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) All right. So, so let me ask you this then, because this is something that affects a lot of runners who are listening to this show is the time cost, right? The opportunity cost of a lengthy injury similar to what you would have dealt with is the idea of like, okay, listen, I just feel like I've dealt, like I've now dealt with this injury for a year or I have now a six month, you know, prognosis and dealing with recovery and PT and then building my fitness back up again. And I'm 38 years old. What is this going to mean? I'm not going to be back with full strength till I'm 40. Like what's the point of even doing this anymore? Just kind of like the downtrodden feel in relation to, the time element and age element within all of this? How would you approach that sort of question or uh, situation with one of your athletes? So I get it. (laughs) Boy, do I get it. I mean, I I hesitate to even say this because I know how freaking crazy it sounds. But, you know, I kind of went from – you know, when I, when Sarah Bishop was coaching me, uh, I think this was maybe after we recorded the podcast. I can't remember now. I'm like messed up on my timeline, but I went from a 132 half, 131 half to a 125, like really fast. And I was like, wow, like I'm extrapolating now, but like with another year and a half of this work, like, could I maybe even be in spitting distance of an OTQ? Like this might be my only shot. I don't know if I can do it, but I just want to see if I can at least run two. I mean, what's the worst that happens? I run a 252. Like, would I be sad about that? Holy crap. No. Like, those were the conversations that were, you know, I was having with myself in my head about, you know, trying to see like how much I could develop and how far I could go. And, you know, spoiler alert, my PRs are exactly the same now as they were then because I've been dealing with all of this. And, you know, I certainly have had thoughts of like, oh my gosh, another four years, the standard would be faster. I'd be that much older. I'd be close to 40. Like, this is an impossible goal. Like, I need to redefine like what I'm hoping to do. But then I kind of realized like, yeah, like that was an idea. Like that was an idea of a time related goal that would so quote unquote mean something because some governing body decided that it meant something. But what my real goal is, is just to see what I can do. I mean, I was never an athlete. I I had a really, you know, kind of a 10 year, very dark and windy, twisty, turny path that led me to discover running in the first place. Um, you know, running is really my joy. Like it's my outlet. It's, it's a big part of my sanity on a lot of days. And I get so much thrill out of just seeing myself do things, even in training that I never imagined I could do. And, I know what I've accomplished so far um, isn't all I can accomplish because the training has been so compromised by by this injury. And I'm just so curious to see what I could do with, with a solid year or two. And so 
I get the time pressure and I, I especially get it when it's related to four year cycles or the Boston cycle, you know, that's another huge one. Um, you know, you start to feel, although with Boston, I guess getting older helps you a little bit theoretically, maybe, um, you know, I get the feeling of time pressure. I get the feeling of sunk costs, but at the end of the day, I think reconnecting with your why, like, why did you even start this in the first place? You know, what made you start running in the first place? What are you trying to accomplish? What do you really want that's outside of just, I want to run X time? Like, well, why do you want to run that time? Like what made that time important to you? Um, I think those kinds of questions and believe me when you're like slaving away on an elliptical for, (laughs) for an hour, like you, you kind of like need to have a good sense of why, like you have a lot of time to think about it. You have a lot of time to do some soul searching when you're injured. So that's kind of what I, I, I want my athletes to do and to always have a good grasp of, even if they're healthy and training well, like, why are you out there? Why are you doing this? Cause this is hard. Like, it's so hard. You're absolutely right. It really is. And I appreciate all the the time that you put into this, this, you know, these thoughtful answers. You also presented them again um, into to Women's Running Magazine. And, you know, your ability as a coach is well known to everyone within the McCurdy trained community and specifically to your athletes. So if people want to learn more either about you or the running service, where can they go? Uh, well, so... McCurdy trained on uh, would probably be the best place to start at McCurdy trained on Instagram, McCurdy Um, I try to post a mix of, you know, coaching stuff, stuff about my athletes, stuff about my personal journey on my Instagram. So, you know, I don't know if, if you're not fond of me, maybe you don't want to follow that, but because <laughs> there is a lot of personal stuff in there. It's not, it's not a purely business account, um, but I'm at it's Heather's turn. Um, but yeah, I mean, McCurdy trained would be a great place to, to go and check out and kind of hear a little bit about like what we're about. Um, you know, I've learned so much by being a part of this family, like, and I really do consider it a family. Um, you know, we have like 25 coaches, 27 coach. I can't even keep track at this point, but like, I've learned so much from everyone involved and like you coming on board as well, Matt, and like the coaching calls that we have. Um, Gosh, I just think we're doing good stuff out there, and I hope other people feel the same way too. So go check us out if you haven't. (laughs) There you go. Well said. Heather, thank you so much for coming on the show, and good luck with everything you're doing. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to catch up. Heather, thank you so much for coming on this show. Again, as always, such a such an honor to talk to you. You just know so much. I've had a chance to talk to Heather actually in person most recently at the Houston Marathon, and that was a blast as well. Thank you also to Prevenex.com. Go over there, get a multivitamin, get the Joint Health Plus, and a variety of other things. I actually take five supplements every day from Prevenex, and I'm better for it. And I know you will be too. So go check them out. Also over on the Patreon page, Patreon is where I put out exclusive content where you can get it for $5 a month, follow-up episodes with some of our most um, popular guests. So recently, Melissa Milani was on, uh, Sarah Caney, I'm actually interviewing her tomorrow, I'm going to be interviewing Allison Staples, and a bunch of other people who have been on the show were beloved guests, and we're going to follow up with them. The best thing about Patreon is once you sign up, all you have to do is press subscribe on the Patreon app, and then it uploads it right to your Apple podcast or 
uh, Overcast. I think those are the two that connect with Patreon, not Spotify, which is my usual and preferred method. But if you have Apple Podcasts or Overcast on your phone, you can get the Patreon episodes on there and never go back in the Patreon app again if you don't want to. And that's how I listen to all of my Patreon episodes with people like Ali Feller and Lindsay Hine. Uh, they have uh, Mario Fraioli, Billy Yang. I get all their Patreon episodes over on Apple Podcasts and it works out great. So go check it out. Patreon.com forward slash Rambling Runner. The link is also in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of In Post Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest of states these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.